So I think I've had some students at first not be so sure about me, but then after a couple of weeks, they're like, oh, okay, she's not that bad. And then they're like, oh, wait, I actually really like her. Or at least <laughs> I think a lot of them like me. <laughs> no, so. they, they certainly do. At least from talking with a few of them, they, they mentioned that the class shares the sentiment. No, and that's, that's great. And it makes me happy because another thing too is, you know, when you're younger, you think, you know, everything and well, nobody that only can tell happens me. when you're younger. No, no, I guess some people think that as they're older. <laughs> um, but I tell my students, I don't know everything. And the older I get, the more I realize I don't know. And I get to learn from them as much as they get to learn from me. And they're always like dumbfounded by that. They're like, what do you mean you're learning from me? I'm like, well, I got to learn from different places because there's no way for me to learn everything on my own. Mm -hmm. Plus, I love how diverse our students are in age, in race, ethnicity, and, you know, how long they've been in the United States. Um, You know, I have students that have come from all over the world. And, you know, I always bring up... um, culture and everything in regards to health because I explained to them how does your individual culture affect your health or whatever topic we're addressing what about American culture what about culture in your family what about the culture from um you know your place of origin you know and some people acculturate differently when they come to the United States they might adapt more of American culture or South Florida culture where some people might stick more to culture from the country they originated from so I bring all of that up too because it's important to have different perspectives and I always preface my my um, classes in the beginning as well because we're talking about health disparities and differences among groups whether it's sexual orientation or race or ethnicity um, that you know what we're in college and we are going to have intellectual discussions And everybody needs to be respectful. And even if you don't agree with somebody, you need to consider what they're saying and maybe consider their viewpoint, especially when you do not agree. Because you might learn something and maybe look it up. And they might be totally wrong, but maybe still be open to hearing it and then learning about where they're coming from. And then you can share your experiences too, because that's the only way that we can reduce bias, that we can reduce prejudice and really be true intellectual thinkers. Because if I stay in my own bubble and just think what I know is accurate and what I've you know, learned is the only way to be, then you're going to be very small minded, not only in the ac- academic community, but in the world. And we want to be um, not just tolerant of other people but be open and willing to learn and grow and understand. Cause you know, I tell students, you know, I, when I come to opinions or reasons for things, I do it based on the information I have at that time. And I try to make the best decisions possible. But if I'm presented with new information that I haven't heard or evaluated yet, I will reevaluate my viewpoint on something based on that new information. So we have to be open to, to, flexible and to be flexible and change based on new information because things change and there's no way at any point in time we have all the information we might think we do but we usually don't so it's very interesting to see my students 
you know, kind of adapt that as the semester goes and really have those intellectual discussions without taking things um, personally, but also being able to share their perspectives and their experiences so we can all, you know, learn from it and become more enriched in the way we see the world and the paradigm in which we view it from. But it's, it's hard for students to grasp that at first, I think, a lot of them. But I still always try to push that, that forward through, and I do it in different ways too, through in-person discussion and also online discussion, because I find that the people who are more talkative online are less talkative in the class sure. and vice versa. So I try to do it different ways too, but I'm very strict on, and I have no tolerance for anybody to be rude or disrespectful. So, uh, well, I, I, I'm curious how you manage to, to do that, but just a quote in case you're not familiar with it. Uh, Lord Bertrand Russell was an English philosopher and mathematician, uh, 20th century. And, uh, the context in which he said the following, uh, was with regards to his stance on war. Uh, he was asked to, you know, leave his post at Oxford or Cambridge or wherever he was teaching at the time and go and fight in one of the world wars. I think it was the second one. He was really old when he died, so it might have been the first one as well. But he ended up uh, in going to prison because he said, I will never die for my beliefs because I might be wrong. And it was a subtle dig at the sentiment of patriotism under which he was being asked to go fight a war that he didn't believe in. And, you know, he was against war of any kind for philosophical reasons. But how, how do you strike a balance between making sure that the students understand that there is plenty, if not more, to be gained from listening to people that they disagree with, mm -hmm. but also doing so in a manner that is respectful and not, you know, and I find the, the discourse these days in, in public forums has devolved to where that does not happen. That if, if you find that, you know, you disagree with someone's position, then it's not even worth having a conversation with them. And I've been guilty of that as well. And things that I very strongly believe in, uh, you know, vaccination is one of those things where, uh, you know, if you maintain that vaccinations cause autism or, you know, that the government is trying to kill you or microchip you by giving you vaccinations, I find that that's a, a socially irresponsible stance to maintain. And I don't know what I could say to influence that person otherwise. Well, so I would perhaps not be a very good student in your class if that topic were to come up. But how would you then, for instance, convince student Anurag to say, hey, I understand that you feel very strongly about this, but well, how would you deal with me if I were in that class in that scenario? Sure. I mean, we do talk about vaccinations, especially in my contemporary health issues course. And we talk about outbreaks and pandemics even before COVID um, because these are public health issues. And, you know, I have a lot of students who don't even go to the doctor because it's not what their culture does or a, a, they don't really believe in going to the doctor or taking medication. So forget a vaccine. Now you're going to inject something into me. So I first it's there's two different 
things here um, that you're talking about is one is being respectful or two influencing someone to, to think a different way. So I do not um, try to force my students to think one way or another, but I mm -hmm. try to give them the tools and the data to make educated decisions. So I am very strong on them understanding, you know, peer reviewed data, which you can find data that supports different things. But when it comes to vaccines, there's a lot of data that shows that vaccines do work and do help, although different vaccines have different rates of effectiveness. Sure. Um, and we go through that as well. And the CDC had published some stuff last year on pertussis, which is whooping cough. Mm -hmm. which is very deadly for little kids. And, you know, I have two little kids, so I'm very passionate about that. Um, but I take my passion for my viewpoint on things out of it. And I try to be more neutral and very factual. And I've showed them data that shows in outbreaks of clusters of people who've been vaccinated versus unvaccinated and how many more people will get it in a vaccinated versus an unvaccinated group, for instance. So we, we look at that data. I have them do research their, themselves on say a vaccine or an outbreak, just like when measles started coming back around was when I had my son um, in 2014, there was a measles outbreak at Disney in California. And I was like, well, this is, why we need vaccinations because somebody who's not vaccinated has this is spreading it and measles is highly contagious and you know through the respiratory um, secretions so I also you know explained to my students how some of these things are passed and now you know COVID was a more recent example because if you cough or sneeze into the air those droplets can stay in the air for two to four hours sometimes longer depending on what it is but you don't see it. And then you walk unsuspectedly into the classroom, walk right through where somebody sneezed and now you inhale it and now you're getting sick from whatever it is. If it's a cold or a flu or something more like the measles or COVID. Um, and now, you know, then you're unsuspectingly potentially bringing this to other people as well. So I try to teach students how immune properties work, how the immune system responds, just like how they came up with um, the first vaccine, Jenner came up with it, and it was um, for smallpox because one of the things that they were doing too is the milkmaids would get the cowpox from milking mm -hmm. the cows, but they they found that the the milkmaids were not getting smallpox because they were building some immunity from the cowpox. So they took some of the the pox secretions some of the pox to make a vaccine against smallpox. And then they found that it was helping people to, to not acquire smallpox. So, uh, you know, there's really interesting ways that people have come up with vaccines. Now, am I a fan of all the um, things that they put in vaccines, the preservatives and whatnot? Um, no, but is, are we doing it the best way we can right now? Yes. Are there some adverse reactions? Yes. And I share those websites with students too. And what are some of the side effects? But the, you know, some of the worst reactions are more rare, but there's risk and benefit to everything. Just like when you take a medication, 
how many times have you seen the commercials where it's like, here, this pill helps with headaches, but you might have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, <laughs> 10 other things. And I'm like, oh, I'll sure. stick with my headache. So, you know, you have to weigh the risk and benefits. And for each person, you know, they're going to view that a little bit differently. And then you think about behavior change. And especially with something like inoculations and in vaccines, you think of the like the health belief model and what are your beliefs and your perceptions to your susceptibility and your risk? And then how severe is it? How bad is it going to be the consequences? You know, what are the benefits? What are the barriers, you know, for you to make this change or say, you know, use a condom or get a, get a vaccine or what have you. So behavior change is very complex. And, you know, I challenge students to really assess this within themselves and where are they getting their perceptions and beliefs from. So I'm not telling them, oh, you should definitely go do this if you're against it, but you should really consider it in its entirety and look up, you know, some of the data too. And I think some vaccines get a bad rap too because they're just not as effective as other ones. So like the flu shot, people, I always hear, well, I got sick. It didn't work. Well, let me tell you something. The flu shot's a little bit different and it is kind of strange because it's based off three strains from the previous year. Mm -hmm. And there's only been two times in history where two times in a row since they've made the flu vaccine, that one strand has been the same two years in a row out of the three. And you know, but they show that people who do get the flu vaccine, even though they get sick, they tend to be hospitalized less. And a lot of people don't realize the number of people who are hospitalized or actually die from flu and pneumonia as well each year either until now when, you know, people have been talking about COVID. Um, but people are very surprised when they're like, people die from the flu still. And then we talk about who would be more at risk. You know, people who are immunocompromised, people who might have HIV or cancer going under, you know, chemo, radiation, the elderly, children, you know, there's different populations, just like with COVID that we want to protect for them to not get, you know, coronavirus because they might end up in the hospital or, you know, passing away from COVID. So does it mean everybody is at higher risk? No, but there are people that are more at risk. And if we have with any vaccine, you know, if we don't have enough of the population, it should be 90% of the population that gets the vaccine for us to even have that herd immunity. Because a lot of people go, well, I'll just, I'll just be immune. I have the herd immunity because everybody else gets it. Well, no, a lot of people have stopped getting vaccines and they've actually termed it vaccine hesitancy mm -hmm. because of all of the support, um, against vaccines. And I'm not saying that all of the information they have is wrong. Some of the things that they do state is accurate because there are adverse reactions. But again, it's what is the percentage of the adverse reactions and what are those adverse reactions that are occurring? So I think it's important to be an educated consumer, whether it's buying a TV or taking a medication. But I think a lot of times, you know, we've been taught not to question the doctor when we go to the doctor. You know, they just have a higher privilege or knowledge. But we really need to make sure that we're, <coughs> excuse me, 
that we're evaluating health information, that we're asking questions. But now we have so many people that are pushing their agendas and opinions right or wrong that I think a lot of times it clouds the facts. And I think when more people are posting things online that might not be accurate, if I agree with them or not, I think it becomes dangerous because now people are taking things that are posted on Facebook as, as fact. So we run into a lot of different issues, but if you were in my class, I, I wouldn't try to, like I said, sway a student either way. I would just give them the tools to learn more about the topic. And if they keep their same position, then I respect that. If they change their position, I respect that. The rule that I have in my class is nobody can be disrespectful to each other, no matter what their viewpoint is. Sure. So I would definitely let you express your opinion as long as you did so <laughs> respectfully, even if you didn't like what other students were saying. And I think that's something that we need to be aware of in the class, in real life, and on social media. But it, it's hard, especially when you say, like, people are passionate about things. But attacking somebody is not going to make somebody change their opinion. It's going to make them want to stick to their opinion even sure, more. absolutely. <laughs> so How I think... You... Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, I think when you show that you're open to hearing somebody, it brings their defenses down more too. Mm -hmm. And it allows for, for more conversation, but you can't go into a conversation thinking that, you know, well, by the end of this, you have to change your point of view, you know, and that's from both sides. To follow up on that. So you mentioned that there's a, a fairly large component of, going to first sources and peer reviewed journals or articles and looking at PubMed or, you know, library resources that perhaps are available to students while they're in the class. How oh. do you think, I'm sorry. No, even when they're out of class um, and they don't have those resources, there's still a lot online with Google scholar PubMed. There's a lot of free journals, academic mm -hmm. journals that come up where some you might not have access to. There's a lot that you do. So the question is, I, I know that it's a lot easier to find information on Facebook, especially if you look for things that agree with your sentiment or your belief system or value system. <laughs> oh, how, how do you find yourself not convincing? I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, but telling students or asking them to maintain the same sense of curiosity and a, a search for peer-reviewed facts or peer-reviewed thoughts, I'll say, to make it slightly milder, uh, and not necessarily reject the stuff that they find on Facebook and Instagram and, mm -hmm. and Twitter and all these other things. But I find, at least in my okay. own classes, that as much as we try to go to primary, primary sources of data, you know, CDC coll data collection or WHO data mm -hmm. collection, once the students leave my class and they send me friend requests on Facebook and whatnot. So mm -hmm. I, I, you know, after the semester is over, I accept them. 
but I find that, you know, while they were in my class, they did the things that I asked them to probably because I asked them to do them. Do you have any thoughts on how I could encourage those effects to persist even after uh, those students or individuals have left my class to where I can encourage them to say, hey, look, you you looked at whatever you're looking at with a very critical lens. Uh, not critical in a bad way, but you, you use critical thinking to evaluate the merits or demerits of whatever you were reading. Now, whether you agree with a piece of information or not, something that you find in, in the wild, as it were, uh, instead of perhaps believing it at face value or taking it at face value, See if there's a, a Google Scholar uh, citation that's, you know, available that you can go reference. So is that something that you found that you don't have to deal with? Or uh, do you have any tips or suggestions on how to encourage students to go look for primary sources instead of just believing things at face value? Well, I start my class with teaching them how to find um, more quality information. Mm -hmm. So we talk about it the first few weeks and then we talk about it more when we start projects as they're finding the resources. So I kind of embed it into them as we go and they have yeah. to use, you know, quality resources for even their assignments um, because they'll look up health disparities and, you know, give me numbers per, you know, 100,000 people or what have you. Um, so they have to actually find this information. But Something that I didn't mention before, but I do mention to my students, and I think it's important with social media, is something um, called the theory of reinforcing spirals. And when you're on social media or even in Google searches, the things that you search, the things that you like, the people that you follow will dictate what pops up. So like me and you can do the Google search on like the same topic and different things will populate in our Google search. Sure. Based on prior behaviors. So it already is like a built-in bias. So it's important for students to realize that just like when you like a post on Facebook or Instagram, different posts that are similar will come up and it will actually reinforce the, the things you've been seeing or behaviors um, or topics that are being expressed. So that could lead you further to one side of a topic than the other and away from more of a middle ground or away from hearing the other side. So I teach my students this too, because they're like, well, all I see is this on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, because that's all you're looking at. And they're always like, really? Like I had no idea. And some of my students are highly offended by this. They're like, well, <laughs> they shouldn't Their be doing this. Their worldview is coming crashing around them. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, people pay a lot of money for these algor algorithms to keep sure. you in, in one line of thinking or to try to sell you some products. Or I'm like, have you ever like had a conversation or look something up? And then all of a sudden these ads are popping up. They're like, yes, that's so weird. I hate that. And there's some ways to try to turn some of it off, but I don't care. I've turned everything off and it still happens. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> And uh, actually, one of my, um, I had a male student, his wife, I guess she had a shopping online issue. She needed to stop shopping online. <laughs> they had made a deal to not, you know, buy certain things. And he goes, I caught her. 
And I was like, okay, I bet this is an interesting story. Well, because they're from the same household and they have the same IP address, I guess whatever Oh, he kept she- getting ads. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he kept getting these like high heel shoe ads and this other <laughs> stuff. And he was like, I know you're buying stuff. <laughs> And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, now she's just going to get a VPN. So you can't, you know, it's not tracking her, your IP address. <laughs> but uh, it's really interesting. Like everything that we do, you know, kind of gets filtered by what we're searching, what we're looking at. And it, and it can really reinforce bad health behaviors too, depending on, you know, what we're looking at. And, and because I teach health, I, I talk about that with my students too. So, you know, I, I tell them, you know, they could tell me one thing all day long, but their behavior might not really change. And they might do something for my assignment to meet the criteria. And I would never know how they really feel or what they're really doing. But they have to realize at the end of the day, what they do influences others and what other people do influences them. So we talk a lot about the, you know, ecological model, social ecological model, and also the, the influence on our family, our significant others, our kids, our workplaces, our places of school, you know, and society. And, you know, we have to think from a different standpoint how are we being responsible or not? So when we complain about how things are in society, then we have to ask ourselves, you know, it's not one person, but it's groups of people that make huge influences. You know, are we acting the way we know we should, you know, think about integrity, think about character. Um, You know, we have those conversations too. So You know, I try to, you know, I accept my students for how they are, who they are, the, you know, viewpoints that they have, but I try to get them to think on a more responsible level too. And I remind them, you know, how do you want things to be for your kids or your grandkids too in the future? Um, And just think about what happens when we spread a lot of information and we don't even know if it's accurate you know, how many more people take that information and then go as long as it's fact, you know, and some people could even argue that even not all peer reviewed stuff is, is accurate, but you know, even in research, we're supposed to have ethics and is everybody ethical? No, but at the end of the day, then you have a group of experts in that field that are evaluating that information and hopefully they're making ethical decisions to publish or not. And typically that information is blinded. You know, they don't know who it is or the, you know, all the data. Um, they don't know who's submitting the paper, who's reviewing it. So there's a lot of um, blind review. And then that's still better than somebody just posting a blog or a podcast, sure. <laughs> you know, with, you know, I can make a website. You can make a website. We can put whatever we want okay, great. It comes up in a Google search, but it doesn't mean it's accurate. Mm -hmm. Just like we can post whatever online. So I think we can only give students tools um, and try to help them understand. But I think too, I, I really try not to force my opinions at all. 
I really just ask questions on both sides of anything we talk about and ask them to think of any more questions we should consider and just try to get them to continue that moving forward. But, you know, there's no way to really know for sure. We can just try to continue to help them have those more intellectual discussions and try to be more responsible with what they're sharing and what they're consuming. So two things you mentioned. One uh, more recently you said that there uh, or that you share with your students that the way they go about doing or conducting their lives affects other individuals in 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 their social circles and uh, you know there's this butterfly effect between them and and people uh, within certain degrees of separation. And then earlier you had mentioned that you had worked with DCF and you had gone out on calls and, and, and seen, uh, well, unfortunate things. How, how did you balance the two then? Uh, because obviously the things that you see do affect you, but how were you able, well, if, if you're able to sequester those two, I guess, thought processes, uh, how do you, in other words, leave work at work and then come home and, you know, maintain a, a semi-sane existence. But at the same time, you know, when you go out and you see abused children and, and you see people being trafficked, uh, how are you able to insulate or sequester that part or compartmentalize that? Realizing full well that, you know, those are things and events that do affect the way you are. Well, that is very difficult. Um, without a doubt, I could admit that 100%. And, you know, we all have a little bit of bias. No matter what we try to do to not be biased, we have a little sure. bit of bias. So I try to minimize the bias. But also, I always acknowledge that I have some bias. So I think that's important, too, because I don't think there's any way to completely get rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's been easier in a way over the years to try to separate it. I think it's something that I've had to learn, you know, through the different careers that I've had and over time, because I remember when I first went out for those, you know, cases and investigations, it was hard for me in the moment, you know, I was mm -hmm. more neutral, but then I go home and cry. And I wanted to take all the kids home with me and I didn't want them in the bad situations. And I was like, all right, I'm going to start my own group home. And that's not bad either, but it, it still doesn't get rid of all of the issues. They're still there, sure. you know? So I think even now with the human trafficking, you know, it still gets to me, but there's, so I think it's a little bit different with that stuff because there's things that you have to do to, reduce burnout, to reduce um, vicarious trauma, you know, having certain things in place where you debrief with colleagues that you work with, that you have these discussions with them on, you know, different cases or things that are going on or, or you, um, you know, you have to do things that, for self-care. And to keep you, you in a mentally and physically healthy space to keep doing the work that you're doing as well. Because you have to pour into yourself as much as you pour into people. 
because if you burn out, then you're not going to be able to, you know, do that work and, and serve others the way that you want to. Now, even with that, I still, the things that I see, of course, it gives me some bias and some perspective on the issues. But still, at the end of the day, it's like people can't always understand situations just from the way you explain them. I feel that not that everybody's going to experience the same things, but people have to arrive at different perspectives on their own. And you try to help them by just teaching them how to find that information, even with the stuff I do on, you know, in drug education or substance use or human trafficking or sexual assault or child abuse, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to grasp what these things look like if they haven't seen it or they think they know what it is because they saw a movie or they saw somebody who went through something. And some of those nuances might be accurate, but there's different components. So it's kind of, it's really an interesting phenomenon, just like with human trafficking, everyone says, well, it's like taken. If I've, I've seen the movie taken, you know, I understand human trafficking and taken is, does have human trafficking, but it's also, you know, kidnapping, you know, there's different components. And I think it's the more research somebody does, the more training, the more they hear about it, the more they talk about it, the better they are to understand it. Like I'm the first to say, whenever I talk about human trafficking, I've been consciously working on in the field of human trafficking for I think a little more than seven years now, but I still learn new stuff all the time. Sure. You know, or it comes up a different way. And then I'm, you know, trying to understand that perspective or that component. So when I worked in child welfare, I was seeing trafficking, but I didn't know it was trafficking. So I don't count that time because I had no idea. Like I worked in child welfare. I started while wow, I was 13 years ago, but I, I would say that I didn't have more specifically work around human trafficking until about seven, a little more than seven years ago. So some things are hard to really understand at certain levels unless you have more experience, but then, yeah, you do see it a certain way. So I think for like, with any topic in, in the general public, you know, there's so much that we can learn from research or like documentaries or experience, but then there's still always more to, to glean from it. So I think something that I like, especially with my students, is I try to teach them to always be open to more information and knowing your biases and your perceptions and how that affects how you talk about a topic or the way you look at it. So if I'm arguing any topic with somebody and not arguing, say like debating or or having a discussion, I think it's important to disclose the viewpoint. And, you know, I'm a qualitative and quantitative researcher. So when you do qualitative research with words and interviews, you always talk about the paradigm in which you're viewing the data and drawing conclusions from, or that what themes are emerging that you're seeing and you talk about um, 
you know, what your training is um, that, that kind of brought you to arrive at your position as this, this viewer of the data and as a researcher. And in qualitative data, that they do something um, where they give a background of, of themselves to explain the experiences. And I, you know, talk about my experience in child welfare and human trafficking and the things that I've done because it gives me a different perspective than say, um, you know, somebody that works in law enforcement or in nursing or what have you. So it's always important to evaluate the lens in which you, the lens in which you're viewing things and to d disclose that because that's the more ethical standpoint to have because if you're not disclosing then I think you're not doing your ethical you know due diligence to share that information because like I said no matter what we all have bias but it's being aware of that bias and then disclosing what some of those biases you know might be so I I'll ask the question and then I'll present the context after. Okay. By and large, I'm trying to think of what the exact question STEM was. I think it was, for the most part, do you trust people? And that's all it was. There wasn't any, you know, any more meat to the question than that. So I'll ask you the same thing. For the most part, or do you trust people for the most part? Do I trust them to make like right decisions or do I trust, like, what do you <laughs> That's mean? That's <laughs> the question that I was asked. I, I, or do you find people trustworthy? And I know I'm changing the question now, but do you, and I guess the options we were given were yes or no. It, it depends wasn't one of the option choices. So if you had to pick a side, and it doesn't mean that, you know, if you say no, you're jaded. And if you say yes, you're naive, uh, gut feeling. <laughs> How would you answer it? And then I'll present the context after. Um, well, if anybody who really knows me was listening to this, I want to answer one way, but I'll answer more honestly. Um, just to be honest. Sure. I guess, no, I don't trust people. But okay. that doesn't mean that I want like rights taken away from people either. So I'm no, 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 no. I, I wasn't trying to you know put you in a box or in a corner there. Uh, so to add context to this, yesterday there was a, uh, I don't want to mess this name up, but the CTLE is organizing an eight-week workshop. Uh, I don't remember the name, so I don't want to mess it up, or maybe I can find it in my calendar. Uh, a Thrive Workshop, Exploring What Matters by Dr. Jeanette Sullivan. Oh. And she asked that question first, I think. Mm -hmm without providing any context. And then she shared one of the, a, a Ted talk by an English gentleman. I forget his name, but he said that the same question was asked to people in the United Kingdom and people in the United States. And, you know, in the sixties or seventies, the, the percentage of people that said that they trusted other folks without any qualifications or, or you know, any other conditions or caveats was, significantly higher than it was more recently. And that oh, they thought that. was the, the reason for why people on average were unhappier, or maybe there's a, a correlation there that uh, people don't trust each other. And therefore 
uh, folks are unhappy or folks are unhappy because they don't trust each other. Now, do you think that that's just, or, okay, I have my question. <laughs> do you think your answer would be the same had you not had the same professional experiences that you've had? Or do you think that, you know, things would have been different had you perhaps gotten, gotten into, you know, flight school and become an astronaut? Um, even though my answer was no, I think I'm more trusting than I would have been. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, if it comes to my, me personally and my family to trust somebody else to make decisions, no. Um, mm -hmm. Do I trust that people can make decisions for themselves? I mean, at some point, yes and no. Um, but I, I rather support autonomy sure. in society. Um, so I think it's just kind of like in what direction you're aiming it. Cause we can look and say as a society, do I trust that, you know, people will make the right decisions for themselves? Um, not always, but it doesn't mean that I want say like my first response was, you know, I don't want our rights taken away. Like I wouldn't want the government. No, 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 no. To I, I, and I apologize if I, if I yeah. kind of even gave that insinuation, it, that wasn't the intent. <laughs> but, uh, um, I think that, yeah, if people are more trusting, I, I think that, that they might be happier and not just in like a naive sense, but more in a, a comfortable sense. I think that depending on what our experiences are in life, we become more trusting or untrusting. Just like if you look at Erickson's development, you know, as babies, we learn trust versus mistrust mm -hmm. in the world. And, you know, and that comes down to babies and, and how they react to their caregivers. You know, is this world a safe place? Or if we look at Maslow, you know, we have our basic needs and then we have security needs. So depending on things that have happened to us, we might be extremely distrustful, whereas another person, you know, might be more trusting. So I think there is a level of that that, that goes along with people being happy or not. Because if you are not a trusting person, then maybe you have a harder time being comfortable mm -hmm. and then, you know, to feel happier. I mean, I don't know. Some people probably are untrusting and they're still happy in their bubble. <laughs> I think it's uh, an interesting study that they did and interesting, uh, interesting uh, question to ask yourself, but I think it's, there's a lot of different factors that complicate both of those things. I don't think it's that simple. As you can probably tell, I have really long responses to everything. You've asked They're me. wonderful. <laughs> they are wonderful responses. And I, I don't know what the answer implies. So I don't know what the end of that story is. And over the next seven weeks, I hope to find out. But it was just an interesting question. So I thought to ask it. I, I don't know how to judge the answer, whether, you, you know, how to say whether it's yes or no is the right answer. But I was curious to know if you thought that, you know, the, the things that you had seen, if that potentially hardens people. And as a result, you, you not necessarily lose faith in humanity, but you start to understand that human beings are capable of, of terrible atrocities. And as a result, you, you know, are more reserved with uh, trusting people with perhaps your kids or, you know, I, I found that the answer is severely stilted 
not stilted, but is skewed from mothers versus uh, people that don't have kids. Oh, I and I don't I know if it's just that. the maternal instinct, but I've been asking over the past few uh, past few hours. I've, I've just been texting people I know, and you know, some of them colleagues that don't have kids, and some of them that do, and you know, people that I know for a fact have had a very comfortable life, shall I say, uh, mm-hmm. politely, <laughs> they say, Oh yeah. Why, why would you, what kind of question is that? Of course I would trust everyone. And then from especially mothers of young children, they, they are in a very mama bear sort of oh, yeah. mindset. And it's like, no, I don't trust anyone. Don't come near my baby. <laughs> uh, two well, of them actually <laughs> made that remark. Like, why are you asking? What are you going to do to, to, you know, person X's baby. And Usually I, I've made some silly requests like, can I please make a funny video of your baby eating a piece of lemon? And <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, to, to harm the, <laughs> harm the baby, but I just think that those are the funniest videos ever. So th- these are people that I have good relationships with. So they know that I'm not, you know, trying to be uh, malicious in my intent, but right. I do come up with, with silly questions like that. Well, um, I think, um, I think too, like, I didn't think you, it's interesting because then you bring up the maternal side and I didn't think, I mean, I didn't know what kind of mom I would be. I just thought I would be, um, I don't know. I didn't think I'd be how I am. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm a, a better mom than I thought I would be. Um, but I'm very protective and don't trust a lot of people with my kids because these, sure. I gave life to them. I carried them. I, <laughs> I fed them. I'm still feeding one of them. I've dedicated <laughs> a lot of time um, and ha- my health, my body to them. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's understandable. That's why the air force makes you sign a 10 year contract after, and they, they only, you know, <laughs> take care of you for two years. Yeah. So, and, and actually that contract time decreased um, several years later, oh, which is interesting. They're being distant parents now. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I think it's different, like even with the trusting the world and things say like I've experienced and things that I've seen, I think for a little bit, it did make me harder in some ways, but then I started to try to unlearn that because I didn't want to just view the world as untrusting. So even though I, um, I think I'm, skeptical of a lot of things but i'm still trying not to to have that jaded perspective but i i won't say never you know wasn't in that boat because i was but i realized i was in that boat i'm like okay i need to get out of that because not everything in the world is bad and not everybody's bad but there are these really bad things happening and we need to be aware but i still want to be happy and enjoy my life you know, so I can't be just thinking about all of those things all the time. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's a balance. And then again, part of the responsibilities um, that we have, depending on like, say our career field, but then personally, you know, that's, everybody gets to live their life the way they want to, but some people might not realize that they become jaded or burnt out, or they got in a rut or however you want to look at it, depending on their profession or experiences or things that they've happened that have happened to them in life. But then I think it also comes down to being resilient, you know, trying to learn from 
your experiences, things you've seen. Um, you know, and I work with a lot of law enforcement too, and they're very black and white. Sure. I've noticed that more than a lot of professions, but it's because they deal with the law. So they see it different where I look at something and I see a hundred nuances and people get, you know, there's certain people, their personalities, they get frustrated with me because I'm like, why well, don't have just a simple yes or no response to something? I'm always like, well, it depends this. And I go on a philosophical uh, discussion about it or what is the context? But I just think, again, we don't live in a bubble. We don't live in a vacuum. You know, it's very complex. And that's why they're also doing like social network analysis now with a lot of data um, because there's so much that influences us. Um, and I think that we need to be aware more of the context. But at the end of the day, you know, I think people make decisions if they want to be happy or not. And then... Sure work towards that because I mean some people also have depression I mean if you look at the numbers and they might have increased but more than like one in ten people over the age of 12 in the United States are on antidepressants and then you look at our obesity rates you know two-thirds of Americans are are overweight or obese and then it's like incredible so if we look at all of that and then we look at happiness I think um, you know, a lot of that has to do with how we view things too. And not saying that somebody can't be uh, overweight and be happy because they certainly can. Sure. But if we look at, you know, our, the people who are taking medication and the health issues we have and quality of life, I think a lot of that stuff plays a role too, you know, because people will say, how come one person can come from, um, you know, an abusive household and become an abuser and then another person comes from an abusive household and they they are not an abuser you know i mean there's a lot of complex things there going on um psychologically too and it's not just somebody making a decision to be happy or not but it's that whole you know you get into the whole nature versus nurture discussions too um and i guess it it would be nice to say there's simple answers to things but I've learned there's not a lot of simple answers to many things at all. <laughs> well, I have a couple of questions that I hope uh, result in simple answers. That being said, if, if you have a longish answer for anything, I, I would appreciate and absolutely love hearing it. Uh, okay. I just realized I, I had completely lost track of time, and I'm terribly sorry for, for taking more than what you had generously offered. It's so okay. I'll, I'll transition into these hopefully slightly easier questions. This came from the last individual I spoke with. Uh, what is your favorite memory of a particular dish and or meal? Um, right now was um, my mom making her meatballs and chicken parm. She is, she was Italian mm -hmm. and it reminds me too of her cause she's not, uh, with me anymore but also my grandma used to always make uh sunday dinners and my grandma was like my she was my like my mom growing up mm -hmm. um but now my mom uh passed away last year and one of the last meals we had was a sunday dinner with chicken parm 
it reminds me of her and cooking and eating and hanging out and having a good time. And my mom, she was a very happy, easygoing person. Um, so it just makes me think of her a lot. Sure. Follow up to the previous question. Can you or do you or ever have you made this dish or meal yourself? Yes. Yeah, I Okay, am. so there, I, I gave you a yes or no question. Or in fact, <laughs> I didn't, but someone else did. We were looking for easy questions to answer. I think that was probably the easiest one. Yes, that was an easy one. And I'll modify, I modify the last one slightly. What's your favorite holiday and does it involve food? Everything should involve food. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, um, I, I really like Christmas, but it's interesting because I don't like all the commercialized stuff. Like I don't like expect sure. gifts and feel like people should have to give me gifts, although I do like to get gifts for other people. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. but I feel like you should celebrate people anytime, you know, not just, uh, during holidays, but I just like Christmas because I like the decorations and I like all the food and, um, I like what the holiday, um, means and there's, you know, different originations of Christmas from different cultures around the world. Um, and then where it originated from. So I like all of that history and, I really like um, Christmas mainly, I think, because my grandma loved Christmas and she would make ceramics and decorate and we just did a lot more. And I, and I think that around the holidays, I think a lot of people like holidays. A lot of people don't, though, too. But I think for the most part, things there's just a different feel in the air closer to like Thanksgiving and Christmas, mm -hmm. which I, I, I like a lot. Um, and how that kind of changes in society a little bit. But then it's also a really hard time for some people too. So, but yeah, another long answer to your question. That, that's okay. Long an I, I love long answers. I love long form text and I love long form answers. <laughs> and it was an absolute pleasure uh, getting to know you and talking with you. And I, again, I sincerely apologize for going well over the hour that I had requested. I, I lost track of time. No, it's okay. It was good talking to I know I'm about to get my son fed and then he has class again and the baby's up. Enjoy the rest of your day and, well, afternoon. Definitely. You as well. And thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. Have a nice day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kanathy. Here's a sneak peek from next week's episode had students who had to share a winter coat, brothers, and they only had one winter coat, so they had to take turns during the winter which days they went to school because they had to share that one winter coat. Um, there were two occasions where I purchased a pregnancy test for students who thought they might be pregnant and I was the only person that they felt comfortable enough to come to. Until next time, for another 86 times, take care.